Well, again, good morning, uh, FPC family. Uh, great to, to be with you as always. Um, if you have a Bible, I always hope that you do. Uh, we're continuing our series in Philippians, and so why don't you turn there with me to Philippians chap- chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, I'm really looking forward to digging into this passage uh, with you all today. Um, if you're visiting with us, um, or maybe you're newer uh, to our gathering, we've been in this letter now of Philippians for just over uh, two months now. And, and what we know about Philippians uh, is that it was written by the Apostle Paul uh, while he was under imprisonment uh, in Rome. For what? For, for preaching the gospel. Uh, he is likely uh, under some form of house arrest, which means he would have been literally chained uh, to a Roman soldier. And he is there writing in the imprisonment, writing this letter uh, to a church that he personally planted about 10 to 15 years prior to this uh, to remind them, to remind them of the beauty, to remind them of the value uh, and the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul encourages the Philippian church and us that in light of who Jesus is and all that he has done, to live in such a way that our lives would put on display the incomparable worth and beauty of Jesus. Uh, He says to us all, live your life, live your life worthy of the gospel. Not because because we are seeking uh, God's approval or God's acceptance, but because we already have been approved, we already have been accepted by grace alone through faith alone. So that's where we've been. And now today, uh, we open up chapter 3. Chapter 3, and many people consider this actually the heart, uh, the core of the the letter of Philippians. Uh, We'll see what you think uh, at the end. Um, You know, um, I I think if we're honest with ourselves, I was thinking about this this week, um, just as I was studying this passage, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, um, all of us, in in some way, shape, or form, we're, we're trying to make sense of our lives, We're trying to make sense of it all. We're all searching for for purpose. We're searching for for meaning. Whether you're a follower of Jesus uh, or not, we're all seeking assurance that we have significance in this life, that our lives count, that our lives matter. Um, And so I want to know, uh, I want to know what gives me value. I want it because I want to be valuable. Uh, What makes me a worth while person, because I, again, I want my, my life to be worth it. I want it to count. And of course, um, on that journey, one of the ways uh, that we answer those questions or find meaning and purpose and value, one of the ways that we answer those questions, sometimes subtly, uh, tends to be through our performance, okay, through our performance, through what we do in life and what we don't do in life. And so, what we, what we tend to do, we tend to think that, well, like, if I just get the right job, um, if I can just get married, or if I can find myself in the right marriage, if I just have kids, if I can find the right house, if I can move out of this city to another place, but if I live right, if I do right, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be someone. My life will have value. It'll have meaning. And I'm sure, I'm, I'm certain of this, that, that a lot of us aren't even really thinking about this. 
But often, the way that we live our lives indicates that we are seeking to prove our worth and our value, not just to God, but to the world around us. And again, that's because we believe or we subscribe to this way of thinking that says, I am what I do. I am what I do. Again, because our worth is tied to our performance. And actually, uh, the Bible addresses this. The Bible calls this salvation by works. Salvation by works. Um, It's a false gospel. Uh, It's a perspective about God and ourselves uh, that kills our joy. Uh, But it's something that, unfortunately, uh, we all fall into because it's really the default mode of the human heart, which is why Paul addresses it here in Philippians 3 and why we're going to discuss it today. And so what I want to do uh, for us, with us this morning, um, is walk us through uh, Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 11. And I'm going to break it down um, pretty simply, I hope, but break it down into three sections for us. Um, There's so much gospel joy, so much gospel encouragement here, but we certainly need God's help uh, to receive his truth and what he has for us today. And so let me, let me pray. Let me pray for us. Um, Jesus, we love you. Uh, thank you for the word. Uh, thank you that it sharpens us, uh, that it encourages us, that it convicts us. Uh, would you do uh, your work today? Help us to see you and only you. Help me to get out of the way uh, and your word to go forth with power and authority. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, as we open up chapter 3, okay, as we open up chapter 3, we see uh, Paul, actually, he begins uh, with a warning to the church about works, okay? And so he says there, he says there in verse 1, he says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, uh, we've seen Paul uh, mention this theme of rejoice or, or joy mentioned a few different times. And he's actually going to continue with that theme later on uh, in a much bigger way, actually. It's a big theme of the letter. But essentially, he starts chapter 3, or this section, by saying to us, he says, praise the Lord. Right? Simple. Praise the Lord. He's telling the church, make your hearts happy in Jesus. That's literally what he's saying. Why? Why? Because our joy is actually found in the Lord, right? It's not based on our ever-changing circumstances, but on our unchanging God. That's the point here. He says, he says this, I'm about to remind you of some things that are for your good. He says, there, there's some dangers out there but, but know from the very start, even before I give this warning, kind of put maybe a little bit of fear in you, before you go there, just know this, that we can be joyful and that we should actually be a rejoicing people. And if not, if you're not in that place, you need to know uh, or need to once again consider uh, Jesus' value, his beauty, and his worth, which he talked about all in chapter 2, until that reality of who Jesus is Like that being forever his gives you joy in the here and now. So Paul tells us, rejoice, uh, be glad. And he tells us this right before he gives us a warning 
about the things that threaten to kill our joy. So you see that pattern there, how he does this. It's, it's really good writing. He's like, rejoice, be glad. I'm about to tell you some reasons that, are, that could potentially kill your joy, but know that you should be rejoicing, okay? So here's the warning. It's verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Um, I don't want to understate the fact that Paul um, is very, very purposefully intense in his language here. Uh, and the reason for that is because there's actually so much at stake. Um, there's so much at stake here. Actually, it's eternity. But, but who are these people he's referring to, these three categories? Well, uh, what we, uh, from what we can gather, uh, these were people... These were people who, who wanted to make following Jesus about two things. About both trusting him and what we do. So it was Jesus plus something else for them. And more specifically, what we know uh, for, from the historical context is that there were these uh, Jewish individuals, specifically Jewish men, actually, and they were apparently trying to convince the Philippian church that if they really wanted to be loved by God, if they really wanted to be accepted by God, they also needed to be circumcised, okay? which was an Old Testament sign of God's covenant people, the Israelites. Right? It was a, a sign that they belonged to the Lord, okay? And so now, these individuals, these, again, these Jewish people, they're insisting that followers of Jesus, particularly Gentile, non-Jewish uh, Christians, that they needed to get circumcised as well, okay? That's what this is all about. And if you understand that, okay, if you understand that that's the context, you understand why Paul calls them dogs and those who mutilate the flesh, he calls them dogs because actually we know uh, that that term dog, it was actually a, a fairly common name that Jewish people used towards Gentiles. It's like um, bigotry, racism towards them. They're calling them, them dogs. It was a way of calling them wild, um, dirty, unclean outsiders, right? People who would not be able to participate in the promises of God, okay? And so we have to read this um, in a first century lens, not today. Like, dogs weren't pets at this time, all right? Dogs were outcasts. They were like, the same way that you would think about a rat today, okay? It's the same kind of idea. Uh, and so now, Paul is, is turning the tables. You can kind of imagine this. This church, mostly filled with Jewish people, they get this letter, and then they're called dogs, right? And Paul Paul is turning the table on these Jews, and he says, those who seek to earn, those who seek to earn value, worth, and love from God by what they do, by their works, they are outsiders. That's what he's saying. They are the ones who are actually outside of the promises of God. Those who make circumcision a requirement to belong to God, they don't understand Jesus. They're just mutilating the flesh. They don't understand the gospel. Again, they're outside of the kingdom. And what I want us to understand here, uh, especially for our context, um, is that, that Paul's problem here, his issue here, was not ultimately uh, with the action of circumcision. That's not it, right? But with the principle itself. 
Because what they were teaching, ultimately the foundation of their teaching, was again that our worth, our value, and acceptance from God is dependent, it's contingent upon what we do. And of course, that's a serious problem. Right? Paul is saying, look out for those who tell you that your worth is found in being a good person and doing your best work, right? Watch out for the perspective, even in your own heart and life, that your value comes from following the rules and living the right way. And why? Well, I think this makes sense. But inevitably, what happens when we give into, when we let our hearts drift towards this way of thinking, what happens is that when we perform well, or meet whatever standard that we've created for ourselves, when we meet that standard, we feel valuable and, and worthy and secure, don't we? We feel like we've earned our place, or that even that we deserve God's love. But then, when we don't perform well, which, all, all, of course, we'll all fall there, but when we get to that place, when we fail to meet those standards that we've set for ourselves— we feel the opposite. We feel afraid, uncertain, frustrated, confused. Our foundation, our very foundation, our identity as a person becomes shaky, which of course doesn't bring us closer to God. It actually keeps us from him. And so Paul warns, don't look to performance or self-effort your good works to prove your goodness and worth to God and to others. It's not about what you do. It's about your heart. Right? First Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, even when the Old, Old Testament system of circumcision was in place, even when that was the standard, it was always, it's always been about the heart. Right? Don't miss that. These evildoers, they misunderstood and they were leading others away from God and the gospel. And so Paul tells you and I the same, look out for people who do this, who judge you based on your performance, who look or who hold you to a standard of works but not only that, and I think even more importantly, we should also watch out for our own hearts as well. Right? This is Paul's warning about works. And then uh, he moves into a concern uh, about our confidence or the location of our confidence or where we place our confidence, okay? Look at verse 3. He says this, for we, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul says, those who trust in Jesus Christ by faith alone, grace alone, they are the quote-unquote true circumcision. He's saying they are really the true covenant community of God. They're the family of God. And then he gives some marks here of, of, of genuine followers of Jesus. He says, they are those who worship by the Spirit of God, meaning, meaning the emphasis is a relationship 
with God. Again, not on external rules and performance, but on an inward heart change. He says, followers also glory in Christ Jesus. It means means to boast in or to have our ultimate hope and joy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, not in what we do and not in what we're able to do. And then he finally says, followers are those who put no confidence in the flesh, which is what? It's everything that exists outside of Jesus, right? Everything. So Paul says, he's saying, put no confidence in created things. Don't put any confidence. Don't put any hope. Don't put any stake there, right? Don't bet on that, right? Followers of Jesus are those who have been given new hearts, by the Spirit of God, who place their ultimate hope in Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So again, you can see none of this, none of this, what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus, none of it has anything to do with our works or our performance. It's not about what we do and what we don't do. It's all about grace, all of it. And then Paul goes on to say, I love this. He goes on to say, let me give you an example, and it's my very own life. I love this. Because if anyone, anyone, should have confidence in the flesh and their own works, it should have been Paul. And he he says that. Look at verse 4. He says this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcision, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul tells them here this. He says this. Um, Basically, he says, I'm a full-blooded Jew. That's what he's saying. My heritage is pure. Not only that, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning this. He's saying, I've received the top of the top education. Right? He, we know this, actually, that the Apostle Paul studied under the leading rabbi of that day. His name was Gamaliel. Right? He was going to be, Paul, the Apostle Paul was on the trajectory of being one of the most popular, or not just popular, but powerful men in Israel. Definitely would have been part of the Sanhedrin, one of the top 70 ruling over, I mean, this is this guy, right? He, top of the top, but not only, he says, was my upbringing right, my bloodline is pure, my education is where it needed to be. He says, look at my achievements. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Basically, Paul says this. It's hard to wrap our minds around this, but basically he says, I'm almost perfect. That, that's what he says. I'm basically perfect. He's like, not quite, but if there was anyone who's perfect besides Jesus, which he's going to talk about, he's like, it's me. He's like, I followed all the rules, all the rituals. I am the model Jew, like dictionary definition, Jew. Ideal family, Ideal character, ideal living, right? It's an outstanding resume. It's impeccable, unmatched. And because of that, 
we, again, we know Paul was held in the highest regard in the Jewish community. I mean, this guy, remember, he's Saul, right? He is, he is named after even, that's why he says the tribe of Benjamin, because who is the first king of Israel? Saul. He's named after that guy, right? Everything, his whole lineage is perfect, flawless. And so Paul's point, though, is even in the midst of all that, he's like, if, if these are the factors or the basis for God's love and acceptance, I have them. He's like, I'm in. But, he says, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, Paul says, I had everything. I achieved it all. Right family, right education, strong morality. But you know what? Tells them, it was all loss. It was nothing. My works were blameless, perfect, but I was utterly lost in my sin without Christ. That's Paul's point here. Right? See, we can't forget that Paul used to be one of these Jews. He used to be one of these like dogs, one of these evildoers, one of these mutilators of the flesh. One of these men who were trusting in themselves and their own righteousness to gain God's approval. That was Paul. But Paul says, now I see. I see that on the outside, I had arrived at the top. But I found even there, I was far from the Lord. My performance was perfect, but it never made me right with God. My self-righteousness never got me into a relationship with God. It was just a sinful tendency to trust in myself, right? But we do this, right? Don't we do this? We fall into this so easily, right? Because it's so easy to find comfort and worth and joy and to boast in what we have, who we are, and what we do, isn't it? It's so easy to drift towards this thinking that I can pursue my own salvation, And that God is actually grading me based on my performance. And again, I'm not just talking about those who don't believe in Jesus. I'm talking about those who do. It's easy to strive. It's, It's easy to start to try to earn. To base our relationship with God on our works, not on grace. Right? We can even say, we can come here to this place. It's kind of, I use the word scary, why it's a warning, because we can actually even come to a place like this, watch online weekly. We can verbalize, oh yes, I believe, I am saved by faith alone, through grace alone. But then at the very same time, not live as though that's actually true. You know what I'm talking about? Like, let me ask you, let me ask you, for those of you who, are, who genuinely believe that, who genuinely believe that salvation is by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Let me ask you, have you ever felt a deep-seated insecurity, a fear, or concern, maybe an uncertainty about how God thinks and feels about you? Or, Or how about this? Let's say one week, let's say two weeks ago, 
we'll even say, two weeks ago, let's say, hypothetically, you were in the Word, in the Word, your devotions were like sweet, right? You're in the Word every day, pressing into God, you're praying every day of the week, just awesome, right? You're up on prayer mount every day, you're there. But then last week came around, and you barely touched the Word, barely got into it at all, and you prayed like once, twice, but that was praying for lunch when you were with a friend. All right? So you barely did anything. Here's the question. Did or does God love you more or less from two weeks ago than a week ago? Does he love you more or less? Does he love you more this two weeks ago and less a week ago? And listen, how you think about right now, you know, your spirit is telling you, how you answer that question might reveal what you believe about God in the gospel. Because we're basing our understanding of how he loves us and how he moves towards us based on our behavior. So we believe his love fluctuates to the extent that our behavior fluctuates. Right? We're basing our relationship with him his love and acceptance of us on our performance, on our works, on what we do and what we don't do. And Paul is saying to us so clearly here, he says, hey guys, listen to me. I'm actually better at performing than any of you. All of you. I'm better than all of you. That's what he says. That's not arrogance. That's the reality. I'm better than all of you. I'm a better follower of God than every single one of you. And let me tell you, No one followed God better. But I'm telling you this, it doesn't matter. It never mattered. And let me tell you why. Look at verse 7 again. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, And count them as rubbish. That word rubbish, it's not trash, by the way. Literally translates to dung, poo. (laughs) Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So here we see now Paul turns to the supremacy of Christ or the supremacy of the Savior. That's where we are now. And notice here Paul says, he says the word loss, by the way, three times in these three verses. He says, what, what gain I had? Loss. Everything is loss compared to knowing Jesus. I've suffered the loss of all things that I may gain Christ. I've heard it said this way before, uh, that what Paul is actually doing here, um, he's, he's introducing us to gospel math. Okay, that's what he's doing. This is gospel math, and it's simple actually. Really simple math. So if you don't like math or you're not good at math, don't panic. All right? You can kind of imagine this. There's two columns here. And in the first column, and I actually encourage you to try this, do this. I started it, but it depressed me. All right, so yesterday. I started, I encourage you to do this. Walk through this even tonight, this week maybe. In the first column, write down um, all your best works, your gifts, your strengths, your privileges, your achievements, 
all the things, all the things that we believe or the world believes give us meaning, value, and worth. Write all those things in a column, column A. And then the second column, column B, there's Jesus. Only Jesus. And Paul is saying, here's what you can do. You can add up all of column A. Everything in the first column, add it all up. And you know what the net result is? Zero. It's nothing. And then you can add up everything in column B, the second column, just Jesus, and the result, everything. All. Infinity times infinity. Gain. That's gospel math. It's simple. Jesus equals everything. And everything else equals nothing. Everything you've accomplished, worked towards, achieved, compared to gaining Jesus and being found in him, it's trash, Paul says. And then Paul summarizes the totality of the Christian life. The whole Christian life. He goes at it right here. It's just, it's good. Um, This is like, this is the book of Romans in like three verses, right? This is the gospel right here. He tells us why Jesus is all and why everything else is nothing in comparison. There's so much passion here. It's, it's like three verses, but it's a run-on sentence. He never stops. There's no period. He just goes, goes, goes. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That means following the law, right? Being a moral person, doing the right things. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from being moral, comes from doing the right things, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that what? Depends on faith. Now, righteousness, of course we know, it's not a commonly used word in our world, right? Uh, But in the scriptures, it's everywhere, all over the place. And what it means, um, it means a lot of things, but to simplify it, it just simply means rightness. That's it. Righteousness is rightness. Our rightness before God, more specifically. And so here, Paul is answering the big question. It's a huge question. What makes us right before God? That's a big question, right? But he answers it. He says, it's not having a rightness of our own. In other words, our morality, our good works won't do it. And by the way, this is why Jesus never tells us to do our best. That's never, in, that's never in like the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, do your best. Be a good person. It's not there. Because why? Because your best, my best, is not good enough. It will never be enough. Everything we do or could ever do will fall short of the infinite excellencies of God. And since even our best works can't make us right before God, What that means is we need a righteousness of another. That by ourselves, we are bankrupt. Again, that's why Paul says, all our efforts are loss. It would be like this. Imagine this. This wouldn't be a good end of the day, by the way, but just imagine this. It'd be like working really hard. Most of you do, right? You work hard. 
You get paid, you take your money to the bank, and you make a deposit, right? You put your cash, right, or check in that machine. You make a deposit, and you do that month after month. You work hard, you do your best at work, now and then you cheat some corners, right? You close your eyes when your boss turns the corner or whatever. Now and then, but most of the time, you're working hard, making those deposits month after month. But then, at the end of the year, you look. You go to the bank, and you're like, hey, I need my bank statement. You're ready. You're going to buy some Christmas gifts, whatever. You want to go buy some for yourself. Maybe it's a car. I don't know. And you go there, and you look, only to find, only to find that all that money was not credited to your bank account. It was taken out. It was debited. There's no savings. Only debt. Just debt. All your effort, all your work, month after month, it only led to debt. And listen, sadly, sadly, many in our world are doing that very same thing. They are trying to live a moral life trying to earn their way, trying to be a, a good person or at least better than their neighbor, right, in comparison. Maybe some, they're giving to charities here and there, right, generally trying to be nice to people, but when they get to the end of their life, they are going to discover that there isn't a deposit, a savings of good works that they've done waiting for them, but a gigantic, a gigantic debt loss. It was all worthless, useless, meaningless. And when you realize that, when you can get your mind and your heart to comprehend that that's how the gospel works, when you come to the place where you know, you truly know, not just surface level, but you truly know that you have nothing, I have nothing to offer God, that we are empty broken, bankrupt, then you're close. You're almost, you're almost there. Because what we need, what we need to bring to him, to bring to God, is nothing. Nothing. What we need is a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. Martin Luther, the church father, he says, an alien righteousness, that's what we needed. It cannot be from this planet. An alien righteousness. That's what we need. A righteousness from God that what? Depends on our faith. Namely, Jesus' perfect righteousness for us. So listen, when you put your faith in Jesus, here's what happens. God credits Jesus' lifelong record of perfection to our account. So that God no longer sees your flawed efforts, your failed works, but instead Jesus' perfect obedience as belonging to you and to me. All right, can you wrap your mind around that? Think about that. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you stand confidently before the creator of all things. You stand before God as righteous as he pours out all of the blessings on you that Jesus deserved for living a perfect life in your place. 
Right? Now do you see, are you getting to taste just a little bit of why we call this good news? Because it's stinking awesome, isn't it? It's amazing. It's amazing. And that's not all. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Right? That knowing Jesus there, by the way, that knowing Jesus, it's talking about, it's relational. It's so deeply relational. It's a progressive coming to know. It's, it's knowing him more and more. It's an enjoyment. It's, it's, it's a joy. It's joy with him. It's becoming like him. Paul says that as, as we follow him, we will experience his power through the work of the Holy Spirit And our hearts and our lives will change. And as that's happening, we will learn to walk in humility. And we will learn to live sacrificially as he did even to the point of death on the cross. And sure, right? Sure. Along the way, there will be. There will be suffering. There will be heartache. There will be disappointment that comes your way, into your life. But, but know this, these are just tools that God uses, again, to make us more like him. And, and, and let me say it this way, not to make light of, of pain, but seriously, even if we do suffer, so what? That's really what he's saying. We can welcome it. He's welcoming, Paul is welcoming suffering here that I may share in his sufferings. That's what he's saying. I welcome suffering. We can welcome it like Paul if we truly believe that Jesus has gained and everything else is lost. If you truly know and believe Jesus is everything, right? you can stand firm no matter what you face, what's taken from you, what happens to you? Because again, you know that all you need is him. And he can never be taken from you. So it doesn't matter what comes my way. You can, he gives and takes away. You know the, the blessed be the name song, right? It actually comes from Job. That's what Job's saying. Give, take away, doesn't matter. I'll still choose to say, you are blessing, blessed be your name. You are holy, you are worthy. Take it all away. I don't need anything. I can have it all, I can have nothing. As long as I have you, God. That's it. That's the perspective. That's the perspective. And then he closes his thought here with this. Verse 11, that by any means possible, he says, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, this is important just for me to note really quickly um, because it doesn't read well in English. Um, That phrase there, that I may attain here, it doesn't mean to earn, okay? That would be contradictory to everything Paul has just said to us before. And so it means to to reach or to get to, uh, to arrive. That's what he's saying. So he's simply talking about persevering to the end, staying faithful to following Jesus until he reaches the goal, reaches the prize, reaches the resurrection when he and everyone else who has followed Christ faithfully will be in the kingdom, in glory, with Jesus, at the resurrection, our bodily resurrections from the dead. So, just in that short, like, three lines, that's the Christian life. 
through faith in Jesus, we get credited his righteousness made right with God. We belong to him. And once we belong to him, we are on a journey of being helped by him to look more like him until the day we meet him and are with him forever. That's the Christian life. And this is the gospel. This is what Jesus offers to you and me. It's just incredible. It's amazing. And so now, with that, now you can understand why Paul says, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. So listen, listen. In Christ, who you are has nothing to do with you or how much you accomplish or how well you behave. Who you are is not found in your strengths, your weaknesses, your past, your present, your future, your appearance, your education, your resume, or what other people say about you. Your identity is in Jesus' accomplishments, not yours. Your identity is in his performance, not yours. Your identity is in his victory, not yours. So that means that if you are in Christ today, you are free. You're free. You are free from performance, free from trying to prove yourself, free from striving, free from fear. And listen, listen, this also means that what matters most about you is not what you do or don't do or what you deserve or what you don't deserve. What matters most about you is whose you are. So whose are you? I pray, pray that you belong to Jesus. All of you. That you hold fast to Jesus. Look, he's the prize of all prizes. The, The treasure of all treasures. He is perfect beauty. Nothing No one could ever bring you more happiness, more contentment, or more satisfaction than Jesus. There are more riches in him than we could ever possibly get to the bottom of. And so every morning when you and I wake up, we can know that we have not exhausted or expired the immeasurable riches of Jesus Christ. He is just a bottomless fountain of good. Someone once said, yes, yes, Jesus commands. He demands us to come to him and to forsake all. But those who do will be too happy to care. This is gospel math. Our best works, our best efforts are lost. Jesus is gain. And therefore, therefore, he is worth giving our very life for and our very life to. So honestly, honestly, this is the secret. This is the secret 
to all of life, to everything, that to have God in Jesus is to have all things. With Jesus. If you have Jesus, you can, you can make sense of your life. I can make sense of my life. Because he gives us purpose and meaning. He gives us value. He makes life worth living and our hearts at peace, doesn't he? So as we close this morning, as we close this morning, I just want to ask you, this is so important, so important. What is there, what is there in all the world that you believe offers you more than Jesus? We all tend to have something. So don't be ashamed of that, okay? But at the same time, we need to address it. We need to ask, and I'm asking myself too, why is it that I get more out of my career than him? Why is it that I get more out of the idea of marriage than him or my actual marriage than him? Why is it that I get more out of material possessions, more excited about the new thing than him? Why do I, why do I get more satisfaction out of the pleasure of this world than him? We all struggle with these questions. Why is it I keep striving to earn my way, to make a name for myself, to find life and joy and meaning in other places? Why do I believe? Why do I believe I can save myself, that I can work my way to God. Why do I still believe that? So church family, my hope is this, that as a gathering, as a gathering, as a church, all we would be about is sincere and pure devotion to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's it. And that through that, that all of us would experience, and I mean this in a very personal way, I prayed this over you actually last night, that every one of you, every one of you would experience a tangible, experiential, a tangible encounter with the living God so that we would actually know, see, and feel the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. I believe that God wants that for us. He does. But what I believe is keeping us from that, what's keeping us from that joy, from knowing him to those depths, is having one foot on the side of performing, earning, and living as though I am what I do, while the other foot is on the side of knowing that our identity is found in his performance and his accomplishes, accomplishments for us. Listen, today, today, don't wait, today, Jesus is inviting you to bring that foot to the other side, to experience him fully, to receive his love, his peace, his grace, his joy, fully, because he loves you and he wants life for you. There is, there is no one like Jesus. Amen? Everything is loss. Everything is loss compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. Let me pray for you.